Hello, and welcome back to another DM's Corner. I'm Joe, your host and your dungeon master. Uh, joining me today, we have a special guest for the first time ever, somebody who is not a member of the Alchemist Club. Uh, on This is my good friend also, Joe. This is going to be a very confusing episode, and I'm going to make no efforts whatsoever to alleviate that uh, potential confusion. Joe, hello. Hi. I'm Joe, and I'll also be your dungeon master today. He will. Joe is a friend of mine uh, from grad school, and um, I have played in several of his campaigns. He has played in several of my campaigns, because, as I've mentioned on this segment before, very incestuous D&D &D group, um, just kind of all around. Uh, yeah, I, I had the pleasure of learning D&D &D from Joe and then proceeding to, to DM for him. Yes, as is the case with many of the people that have, have been on here. Um, apologies, listeners, if I sound a little off from usual. I got my COVID booster yesterday, and it's hitting me a lot harder than I thought it would. As Mine did, too. I got mine list last Tuesday. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, yeah. I'm very tired, and it's strong flu vibes, which none of the, the other two shots didn't really hit me like that, so... I don't know. Anyway, we're here to uh, to talk to you about being dungeon masters. Uh, so before we dive in, we do have we have a letter with DM Corner specific questions. So congratulations, you you get to uh, be here for one of those. But Goodness. before Excited. we get into any of that, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about um, sort of your campaigns? That please just you know a little bite sized. You don't have to explain the whole plot or anything. <laughs> Um, I think, you know, um, I'm currently running a campaign that's been going for about three years. Um, I My kind of goal with this campaign when I started it out was to do the thing where you start in a village and then work your way up. And um, I think it's been pretty successful in that respect where the problems have kind of been of the appropriate level for the, the party. Um and then before that, we ran a, uh, a pirate campaign that uh, lasted for about two years um, that w I think everybody had a great time doing, but it definitely wasn't a case where you guys were the good guys. No. <laughs> no, we sure weren't. <laughs> um, but you weren't exactly the bad guys either. Just very uh, we self-interested. Yes. <laughs> Um, and then before that was my very first campaign that um, was, I think, pretty traditional, expecting you guys to be heroes, um, and then being surprised when you weren't. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, this current campaign, though, like I said, has been going for three years, and I think it's been going pretty well, and of course you can comment on that. Um, yeah, I, I think uh, it has too. It's been... It's been, I, it, honestly, this is the highest level I have personally ever achieved with the player character. <laughs> so yeah, for, that, that's very exciting. For the audience, they've gone from 2 to 11 in three years. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think this is the first time, this is definitely the first time I've DM'd for uh, anyone at that high of a level. And it's been on my mind just trying to think about what changes I need to make as I... DM for you as your repertoire of abilities is becoming more expansive and uh, powerful. Um, 
So I've been trying to think about what 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 are the right moves. And as you know, in our last session, we you guys got invited to come and meet the the political elite in the capital city. So you know that's part of my part of my plan for getting you guys exposed to more interesting and worldwide conflicts. Uh huh. And also taking us out of combat situations where we are much more comfortable than political ones. <laughs> right. <laughs> we do not have a, a a talking party. We we very much have an action party. Mm. <laughs> yes, you guys have uh, definitely gotten rid of any arc that I thought might happen that would involve a little more intrigue. <laughs> Ends up being um, <laughs> quickly pushed aside so that you can go fight a monster. <laughs> yeah. Maybe this one will go better. If you take away the monster options. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. So, um, I mean, I, I can't, unfortunately, talk about it that much. Um, yeah, because that would be spoilers for me. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's. I think it's going to be good. And I, I'll just say that my in thinking about what I want to do... Um, to change the campaign for the higher level characters, I've been trying to think about what um, what sort of conflicts you guys would care about, and then trying to introduce elements that are, you know, explicitly not mundane. You know, something that is coming from a a very fantasy vibe, yes. so that it doesn't feel like you're just fighting you know, a giant predator of some kind, you know, you're fighting an external force. Sure. A Cthulhu level threat. Oh boy, that's exciting. <laughs> Maybe not quite yet, but Yeah, that's you know, wait till we're like level eighteen before we break out the Elder Gods. Yeah. I don't know, you guys killed a dragon pretty recently, so we didn't kill the dragon. We banished <laughs> you, the dragon. You weren't that far off from killing the dragon. <laughs> So thanks. That's a good summary there. We can uh, move into this letter if you are willing to do so. I'll I'll give it a shot. This is, I think you're not everybody who has done a DM corner has had questions from a letter to answer. So uh, you should be honored. This is this letter is from Amy. Uh, okay. Greetings. There are three questions here, which are kind of a couple of them are a little bit multi-part. One, when did you feel ready to DM? There's so much content to D&D, and of course the books are there for reference, but how much general knowledge should one have prior to DMing their own campaign? Gosh. Um, I kind of threw myself into the deep end on that one. I had played a little bit in high school, like on and off, and then when I got to college, I started my undergrad, nobody was around to DM, so I was like, okay, I'll do it. Um... And it's nice to have, like, a basic understanding of the rules, but I generally, I would think, and I might be a little biased because I've been doing this for such a long time, I don't think you really need to know anything other than, like, what, when to call for a role and what numbers to add to the roles. And beyond that, like, you can fake the rest of it, pretty much, if you need to. It mm. depends very much on how, like, crunchy you want your your campaign to be and how how much you want to stick to the rules on it um 
obviously the closer you want to hew to that, the better understanding of the rules you'd want. But if you can, in my opinion, if you can make up a setting and tell a good story and occasionally ask for dice rolls, then that's really all you need. Right. Yeah. I, I agree. Those are the, the core things that you need. Um, for, for myself, you know, as I mentioned, you had started uh, DMing our group and then another person did it for a little while and then I was the second person to try doing it and I think I just wanted to play and I think you were sick of running campaigns <laughs> and wanted to play so yeah. I decided to jump in there too um so we had uh talked a little bit about this but I my personality is just one that does like the rules a bit more and so for me it was important to have a, a stronger understanding of the rules not that you need it as joe said but i just knew that it would bother me and so i definitely made an effort to go through those sections of the player's handbook on the you know combat and adventuring to make sure i was aware of those um because i can think of instances in that first campaign where I was not as aware of the rules or the rules weren't as clear to me. And I remember feeling frustrated that I couldn't, that I hadn't planned for an eventuality. And I think you're going to feel frustrated because yes. sometimes things, bad things happen that you're not ready for. But at the same time, like just being a little more, if you know you're the kind of person who's going to want that, it helps to, you know, have read through those chapters and be familiar with those things and even run like a practice combat right like yeah there, i think there's one at the front of the player's handbook or the dm's uh guide that's just like running through what these characters are doing and just say okay if this player attacks the orc with this ability you know kind of match the abilities to whatever level your players are going to be at for the first time and you can kind of try it that way but again you know it's as joe said Start with a story and a very basic understanding of the rules, and then depending on your own personal desires, you know, increase that level of rules knowledge, and you'll learn a lot as you go too. Yeah, the honestly, the best way to learn like what the official rules for grappling are is to have your players force you to look them up fifteen times. <laughs> Well, thank God they're now extremely easy. Yes. 3.5 <laughs> was such a different beast. Yeah. Um, I only played the one campaign with you and 3.5, and then the next time I played was 5e, so I really don't have much experience with that yeah. edition. If you're going, I would highly recommend if you're going to start DMing, start with 5th edition, and then if you want something a lot crunchier, maybe you can look up the old 3.5 books. Right. Yeah, because I mean, in 5th edition, I almost every single time, it's just roll the dice and add the appropriate modifiers, and then look up the DC. Yep. Uh, I think I'm. we're going to put a pin in that, because I want to come back to talking about your sort of more rules-oriented style to DMing um, <laughs> later, after we get through the rest of these questions. Uh, number two... When you play a character, do you play the character differently now that you've DM'd versus before you took on that role? Do you try to guess what the DM has planned and try to support or hinder those plans? Uh, 
I definitely find myself playing characters that act very sympathetically towards the DM's plans because I have been doing this for so long and I know how frustrating it is when the players are being chaotic stupid and trying to absolutely destroy the beautifully crafted story that you have for them. So yeah. my characters typically tend to, as a rule of thumb, be like, if the DM is def- like hinting at things or describing, like I will lean into that for them to try and make sure that they have the opportunity to read all the poems that they wrote for their players. It's typically only if a, like a one shot is on. If we're playing in a one shot or something, where I'll be like a, a goblin and absolutely mess with the DM. <laughs> Gosh, I just haven't played in player character in a long time um i well i did one recently but it was only for two sessions um i guess i would say that i i just try to have fun with the player character make sure they have some sort of background and that they're if i'm gonna do something crazy you know i talk to the dm ahead of time Mm -hmm. but i wouldn't say i make a special effort to follow the dm's plans um i think that's part of the fun of D is to have a um to go off the wall sometimes sure absolutely but i don't know that um the group that i usually play with has that issue as much they seem to stick closer to the generally laid out uh pathways these days anyway things were a yeah, little different that's true in the before times <laughs> um those players yeah. don't usually play with us anymore, or yeah, haven't that's true. since then. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely well. And it started; it was like seven people, right? And now it's down to four. Yeah. So, another yeah. tip for DMing that I have mentioned on this segment before: do not start with more than like four or five people. <laughs> don't do it. It's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, even fives can be a lot. Yes. Uh, question three, and the, we kind of touched on this already, or you did. Uh, things always go according to plan, right? Laugh, crying emoji. Uh, <laughs> how do you get the campaign back on track when players do something completely unexpected? When do you try to stay with the original plan or veer off in a completely new direction? Um, this it very much depends on exactly what's going on and how far off track things get veered. Um. I typically, and some of my players may contest this, only try to like lock them into the direction we were going if it is very important for the story that is taking place. I like to think that I tend to be flexible when they do something off the wall and like playing that out, seeing where it goes, and seeing if it can add any anything of value to the campaign, or sometimes just being silly. Sometimes you need a session that's just very silly. Um <laughs> But it's very circumstantial, and like it, it varies from time to time what's going on and what's being done and exactly where things are supposed to be going as to where they are currently going, I think. Yeah. I think if things go off, off the wall, I usually will just let it happen. Um, you know, I, I think I alluded to recent that... You know, recently the group I'm DMing for Joe had a situation where they were doing something that was more intrigue heavy and 
they it really i think came down to the party itself wasn't aligned in what they wanted to do and so rather than try to split the party up and keep doing this particular mission they decided just to bail on it and um which is fine but it just meant that they had to deal with the consequences of that and then also they had to give me time to come up with another uh another sort of plot for them so if i if i recall right i think we that session ended early and then came i came back with to the next session was something that i had been planning but that i had been planning for to be further down the road yes um, so unfortunately i think your your players will not pick up everything that you put in front of them or sometimes they'll pick it up and throw it really really far away <laughs> yep uh, and break it and the best you can do is just, you know, listen to what they're saying, what toys they want to play with, I guess, and try to make uh, uh, parts of the campaign that will match with uh, what they're interested in doing. Yeah. And there's there's nothing to say that, like you said, you can't shuffle things around so that, you know, different different things that you were planning to do can come up then that are more in line with what they're interested in or picking up the pieces of the toy that they threw far away and broke and <laughs> building them into something else as well, which mm -hmm. I've had to do a couple times for the Alchemist Club. And they just oh, like, yeah. absolutely smash something like, okay, what can I salvage from this and how can I, how can I put it back? Mm -hmm. Right. And so that must be a different case, right? Because you're much more worried about the story for that because it is a podcast, right? So how how much more do you pay attention to keeping the story going versus um, what you would in a home game? I tend to be a little bit more or less forgiving of um, sessions. It might not seem like it where they're just like grocery shopping or whatever. Um, I would generally be a little more forgiving or tolerant of them spending two hours in the town square looking at different, you know, kinds of apples or whatever. Um, but I'm fortunate in that I am playing with a group of players who recognize that they are on a podcast and have to be listenable. So that tends to come up a lot less often than it would in a, a home game as well, I think. And do you just relegate that sort of thing off screen then? Or is, done, yeah, is it just something you handle on email or Discord or something? Typically, yeah. If if something like that comes up, I'll force them to like, okay, I need you guys to talk about this before we get started. And then you can give me a brief summary. So like what the, um, the Siege of the Mountain Home, Siege, Infiltration of the Mountain <laughs> Home, I told them at the end of one session I was like okay before we start next time i want you guys to have a plan for what you're doing so that we don't spend two episodes of you figuring out what your plan is before we can execute it next time we play you are going to the mountain home yeah i do i remember the end of that episode <laughs> yeah and they were all like whoa <laughs> okay um but like shopping and stuff leveling up mm -hmm. all that jazz typically that all takes place off off mic mm-hmm that is that's all the questions uh so wow thank you for writing in amy i hope those were satisfactory answers uh please write in more with other questions because i like answering questions from fans 
I've got, this is a little sneak peek for you, Joe, and I, I have no idea when this will get published, so it'll probably be read on air long before uh, this <laughs> goes up. But there's another email in my inbox titled Mecha Fall Rock Theories from mechafallrocktheories at gmail.com. Gosh. <laughs> so that's going to be a treat to read. I, I'm looking forward to that one. I'll, yeah. I'll keep my ears peeled on the podcast thread. Yeah. It'll probably be it'll probably be in the next not this week's episode but next week's episode because we're supposed to record tomorrow. Okay. Um. So let's go back to the rules oriented or your more rules oriented style of play versus. Um, personally, I tend to be a lot more loosey goosey with things. Um. Why would you? What what kind of motivates your uh, adherence to the rules? I'm trying really hard, listeners. I apologize if if this comes up. I'm trying to keep my language neutral because it's very easy to say things like stricter style of DMing, which has <laughs> negative connotations. Right. There's nothing wrong with having a more rules oriented DM <laughs> style. It is perfectly valid. It's good in many cases, um, and if something slips out that sounds like I'm bad-mouthing Joe, that is not my intention. I, I quite enjoy being a player for him. So... You're just, just going to find a lot less magic items, you know, yeah, in the future. That's, right, so. that's also, you know, <laughs> being held over my head here. Um, I'm not I'm not trying to bad-mouth or anything, so if anything comes out that sounds negative, that's not, that's not the intention. Yeah, um, and I mean, from reading threads on, you know, Reddit or whatever too people are very against rules and seem to want the rules bent constantly but my feeling on why i tend to stick to the rules and will go through the trouble to you know look stuff up and make sure it's uh, matching is just i think there are the the two aspects to D&D right so there's the story part and but there's also the game part and to me, the rules represent that game part, and I really enjoy in games when you figure out ways to work with the rules to achieve a really cool move or a really cool um, action, right? And so, to me, having the rules be set there and figure out how to to bend them within the game is rewarding those people who like to have the game aspect of Dungeons and Dragons. Sure. I, so, yeah, so I don't know if you think if that's something that you ever come to D&D thinking like, you know, I'm going to build this character that's going to have this feat and has this magic item and like, you know, because of that, they get to do this cool thing. Um, you know, whereas if you're just doing the storytelling, you know, and I and again, it's a, it's a spectrum, right? Like of how much you want to follow yeah. the rules, not follow the rules. How much you want to tell a story, not tell a story. Um, but I think partly because, as I think was mentioned before, our group does tend to have a lot of combat, just because that's what they've shown interest in a lot. Um, and so, following the rules tends to make the combat feel more like something that you can beat right instead of something that you're going to beat because you're you are the protagonists of the story 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's a very good good way of putting it. I think that's very fair. I tend to I know I I tend to adhere more to the rule of cool in part mm-hmm. because that is it's kind of I think more fun to listen to from a mm-hmm. a podcast perspective. Like for a home game, I would probably again adhere a little more to the rules than I than I do already, but not that much, but a bit more. Um but I think that it's it's not as good listening when you're like, okay, actually, you can't do that thing because this paragraph in the player's handbook says that you need to meet these conditions, whatever, that sort of thing. Um, which, again, isn't to say that doing that is a bad thing. It's just not quite as good for an audience, in my opinion. Sure. Um, so there's that. But I also tend to run games for groups that are sort of more on the story side than the combat side necessarily. So again, I think that that's a good distinction. Like the more action oriented your party is kind of the crunchier you have to be in order to, to make it a good game experience. Right. I think another part that um, I kind of mentioned earlier was the frustration I felt when I first started DMing and things would come up that were not, that it was ambiguous within the rules and that especially in combat sort of things as we said and so that made me want to kind of focus in on that area and learn more about it so that i didn't feel that frustration right because i want to have a fun time too sure and i don't want to feel like my combat becomes nullified because somebody does a thing that maybe works within the rules but we're not quite sure I, I think I'm thinking of in an early campaign, there was a room full of, um, I've, oh, I don't know how you pronounce it really, but Saha Gween, yeah. uh, the shark people, and somebody used their their uh, moonbeam and just like ran it in circles around the table. And there was a question of how many times, you know, the the shark people got hit by the laser beam because... I think it says like every time they enter it, right. it's like, well, are they entering it or does it only count the first time? And it was just, it's like, well, did they just like outright kill everybody or like, this is a second level spell doesn't, shouldn't be this powerful. Right. And so it was a moment like that, that made me feel like, okay, I need to get a handle on the rules so that I don't just, so that I don't feel like I put all this effort in and then they just blow it away with a really, and that, I mean, to that one's not even a rule of cool, right? That's just, like, a very normal yeah. thing. Like, that doesn't feel like somebody did something amazing. It's more like, they ah, read... I got one over on the DM. Yeah, they read the spell and was like, there's a loophole I can exploit here. Right. And so for that, I was like, okay, I'm feeling frustrated, so a way to deal with this is to have a explicit ruling on this that, you know, I'm going to, you know, Go read the rule book. I'm gonna look at Jeremy Crawford's tweets, and I'm gonna make my make my case as to why this is the way the spell works. And yeah, and there's just a couple spells like that that I know are problematic, and so I've made an effort to learn specifically the rules on those. And um, yeah, yeah. So it's not always. To, for me to so I guess in that way too, it's not always about the player fun, but it's about the GM fun. So I want to have a good time, and I don't want to be rolled over 
after I've spent a lot of time kind of crafting a session. Sure. So. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, for our listeners who aren't familiar, Jeremy Crawford Crawford is the the guy who wrote D and D's rules, basically. Uh, yeah, I think he's called the the rules sage or something. You know, if you look up D and D sage advice, that's his his column on um on the D and D rules and like how to interpret them and yeah. So he people he has all sorts of stuff. like tweet questions about errata and. Um, edge cases and things and he hands down d- judgment from on high essentially um so yeah that's i think a very good that's a good way of looking at the rules oriented dming and it's you know if you if you make sure that your players have the understanding that you're going to be kind of stricter about that sort of thing i think it's you know it's a perfectly valid and fun uh way to play Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, and I, I don't think it means that you have to... Um, I, I guess I, I don't feel like it means you have to be strict either, right? So, like, even in this current campaign, I may be, you know, focused... I do, you know, have the rules in front of me, but I also am letting someone run, like, a, a character class that's unpublished, and, like, that's fine. You know, as long yeah. as we're clear about it ahead of time about what's going on and it works so here's here's a tip for all you D players out there it's make sure that you have strong communication with your players and or dungeon master <laughs> as with many yep. things in life communication is key to making it go anybody um, who's been to therapy can tell you yes. communicate <laughs> uh kind of Related to that, to the sort of rules rules oriented DMing, but a slightly different flavor, you are the only person I have ever played Dungeons and Dragons with in any capacity who uses experience leveling. <laughs> yes. Would you like to talk about that? <laughs> sure. So I did when I started, we did do milestone. And um you know, I think this is really the first campaign, the only campaign that I've done with experience points. And I wanted to try it out just because I wanted a a way to um, slow your progression without me having to make a ruling on when a story segment was done. Sure. Um, so, you know, typically in Milestone, you would say, oh, you've completed this this mission, this battle, whatever, you're going to, you get to grow level. Um, but in, I just wanted to see, you know, what's this natural progression of you guys growing and dealing with things and not be in control of, um, not have to worry about when that's happening. I don't know that, I mean, I don't know that it's better than really using uh, uh, milestone and being more conscientious about when when you're going to level up and you know and for example you know in, in XP leveling I give you guys XP at the end of the session which is a combination of the anything you might have fought anything you might have avoided and then you know whatever I think is worth it for the various non-combat sort of things um 
and that non-combat sort of arena, that gives me the leeway to say, hey, I think you guys should get an extra thousand XP here because this was a really big, complicated thing, and it feels like the end of a story arc. And, you know, something like that might bump you over to the next level. And sure. so it's it kind of gives me the benefit of not having to worry about it most of the time. But then also, if I feel like we should bump up, I can kind of you can just drop check yeah i can be like let me just give you enough xp to level up and sure. it's fine that's that's fair i honestly i had never really thought about it in terms of like this way like the responsibility of knowing when you're supposed to like when a good time to level up is it's no, i no longer have to work, deal with that issue um or the annoying question of hey did we level up yeah, you don't you don't get that because it's right there on your sheet. You can see it, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I guess I and this is something I've actually been meaning to ask you for a long time. How how much time and effort do you spend calculating experience points, or is it just like you have a, a number that you're like, okay, at the end of this arc or whatever, they're going to get this many? I don't calculate uh, ahead of time. Okay. I calculate at the end of the session. Gotcha. I'm, so I, I give you guys, so that's, I mean, that's the other thing, right? Like I'm not working within the framework of the eight sessions a day, sort of a D&D adventuring day or anything like that. So, you know, that also means that it spans a longer time, right? Because I've seen people say like, oh, it only takes two weeks or something to go from level one to level 20 if you have the eight sessions a day and they're appropriately leveled. Um Sure. But, you know, our in-game time is more like six months right now, and you guys, as we said, have only reached level 11. Um, so I, I think you don't need to calculate it out super clearly. I think the only thing you need to worry about is, is my arc of the, is this particular arc of the story going to uh, conflict with where their leveling is? Uh, so if I have, you know, you guys fighting lizard folk and then you guys suddenly jump up a tier, you know, like up into, t uh, you pass level five or something. And so now you just like slaughter lizard folk and it's just like, okay, well, lizard folk are not a good enemy anymore. So probably either need to make them really, you know, make some custom lizard folk that are really strong sure. or I need to move us past this arc of the campaign. Uh, and I think I only had that really happen one time where you guys were, like, really ahead of what I had been planning. But I think because it was something weird about the, like, the pace at which you were going versus how long it took you to get to the thing. I can't even remember what it was now, but I remember there was one time I was like, I don't know if I can use the bad guys I was planning on using for this anymore. Um, right. So yeah, so you just have to watch out, watch out for pacing. But I mean, that's the same with any um, adventure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So that's a, a good, some good insight into uh, a different DMing style and different uh, method of leveling than listeners to the Alchemist Club are probably familiar with, given that. Uh, many of them haven't played much D&D, and their experience is largely confined to me uh, and then the people on the DM's corner, most of whom 
learn to DM from me. I think they're also learning about my personal psychology. You know, they're like, Joe really likes rules, and he also hates responsibility. <laughs> I, you know, that's that's kind of the window that you install into yourself when you start to DM. <laughs> like, yes, you are you are providing a story for your players, but also you are giving them the opportunity to pierce the veil of your soul. <laughs> yeah. I have, I have too many responsibilities elsewise to add on the responsibility of figuring out if you guys should level up. <laughs> there we go. I'm going to use that as an excuse to why I don't pay as much attention to the rules. <laughs> it's, you know, the grad school, and I'm, you know, four different D&D campaigns and all this other stuff. Yeah, that's why. It's not because I'm lazy. Uh, let's see. What else? Oh, so that's uh, if you're... If you don't have anything else to say about that, we can move on to kind of the only regular quote-unquote segment for the DM Corners that we've had so far. <laughs> I was actually... I actually had something I wanted to bring up. Sure. Um, about encounter building. Uh-huh. So I think this kind of ties in with the XP thing where we're talking about how do you how do you actually go about and build an encounter and know that it is going to work for your group. Uh, and so I'll, I'll let you take that one, Joe. So, this is kind of sticky for me these days, because it's a lot harder to build an encounter for an audience than it is to build one just for a D&D party. Um, dealing with, like, the time constraints. So, it's you know, encounters aren't just combat, but that... The fact that each episode is an hour long and people don't want to spend that hour listening to I move 30 feet and hit it with my sword. I move 30 feet mm-hmm. and hit it with my sword. <laughs> uh, which is less of a problem at higher levels now. Um, right. But the time constraints and making sure that it's listenable um, is a bit more challenging than just constructing something for your typical at-home group. And this is... even Even then... I do a lot less planning than I used to for D&D. And this is something that's come up on previous DM Corners as well. Um, Where, you know, when I started DMing, I would have pages and pages of notes and, like, decision trees for NPCs and villains and combat encounters. And you just, you have to throw all that away the instant it touches the player's hands. (laughs) Right. So... A lot of my encounters these days, both for the podcast and for campaigns that aren't the podcast, uh, tends to be like a few sentences that are like, okay, the the party meets this NPC, and this NPC has this information that they need to convey, and this information that they can convey if the party asks about it, or... Um, you know, the encounter is, you know, can end one of these two or three ways, depending on how the party interacts with it. So it's very generalized, and there's a lot of room for flexibility and changing when the party inevitably does something that I'm not expecting, or decides to uh, go way off the rails, or don't encounter that NPC. Um, like, they're, they, they do things that take them completely out the circle of what I have planned entirely. So... It's it's mostly, at this point, my encounter building is 
here is what I need to convey either to the party or the audience. Um, here are some ways that that can happen. And beyond that, it's just whatever comes up there, I kind of have to make up on the spot as far as fine details go. Yeah, and I mean, that's that doesn't just extend to the recorded game, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all games. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, I know some people have a lot more... Like they take a lot more notes. Matt, for example, because he's mm. he's still a baby DM. Um, he tends to have a lot of like notes prepared before each session. I I don't do that anymore. I I found that it's not a particularly good investment of time for me specifically. Like your your DM style may vary, and you may find that more helpful. But I got kind of tired of you know here's I've got a whole single spaced page of you know. 12 or 10 point font notes on what's going to happen this session. And I get through the first three sentences and then I have to throw the rest away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that I, I get that too. Um, I have a, I similarly prepare very little and I kind of use a, uh, version of the, the lazy GMs guide, which I definitely recommend to people to use if they're trying to learn a good framework for preparation for, uh, D&D encounters but two of the sections on there are um, secrets and clues and then monsters and so in the secrets and clues are usually the things like you said that are the non-combat encounters they need to meet a certain NPC and have this conversation but unlike you you know I don't have to worry about keeping the story uh, as coherent and uh, as good for an audience uh, so I if if you guys don't find out a secret and clue, that may not be the the secret and clue may not be the reality of the world anymore. <laughs> right. Yeah. That may be something that I change because you guys never found it out, so it doesn't matter. It's not that important. Um, and then with the monsters, you know, for combat encounters, I just try to list out the monsters and um, I read through their abilities, you know, in the stat blocks. But then I also try to think about what that would actually be like in a real combat. Um, so what are they doing their first turn? And like, what are they doing if you guys are 60 feet away versus 30 feet away when initiative starts? Um, and so just having that little bit of like what like what their intelligence level says they would do, you know, are they a trained army? Are they just like a ferocious beast? Like that sort of thing, I think, helps with planning those encounters. Sure. For the... For what kind of creatures to use, I think I generally try to follow the uh, the CR, but I'm not. I'm pretty flexible with which numbers I allow to go in there, you know. And that's uh, I think a thing that takes a while to figure out because the CR is not a great. It's it, um, it's a very metric. rough, yeah thing. Um. And that's why I I don't even like unless I am looking for like a stock there it feels like there should be combat here but I don't feel like tailoring it I'll I'll pull up the CR lists and try to find something that's kind of thematic and about the right level yeah but for the most part my combat encounters tend to be pretty much wholly custom at this point um, when when I was a baby DM I used to do the thing like in the DMs guide where they have you calculate out the um, the like challenge rating of the whole combat. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you have this many of this character and this many of this type of creature and whatever. And it took a while. And the only reason I would ever say to do it is it gave me a really good feel for what was what worked and what didn't. You know, and when it, a hard encounter was not a hard encounter, even though it said it was going to be difficult. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of times it comes down to the number of monsters and then different tiers of strength. So, you know, if you have a lot of monsters, obviously lower tiered strength, but it's often good to have a couple of more powerful ones that everyone's going to concentrate their fire on while also having these sort of nagging monsters that are going to be off to the side and distracting the players from the real goal of defeating the the general of the army or the the super big dragon in the sky or something like sure. that. Sure. And honestly, I think you're probably better at um, making interesting combat encounters than I am. I struggle so much with giving them something that isn't like just a walk in the park or a total wipe. <clears throat> well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think the the only thing I try to do is make sure there's some sort of environmental hazard alongside the actual combat, right? Sure. Or not hazard, but environmental interaction, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's smart. That's a good way of getting at it. Yeah. And I think the one I the one the recent one that I was most proud of was when you guys fought that field of hay. Um yeah. I thought that was my favorite encounter I've ever done and it was just it was just a unique enough experience that it felt like you guys had to figure it out while you were fighting but also you could do something to it. Right. Yeah, that was that was a really good one. Um uh, I I enjoyed that one quite a bit. For, for the audience at home, this was... They were fighting creatures from other realms that were invading the material plane. And this one was a... Uh, gosh, it was a sentient, like, tentacle rope thing. I don't even, I don't even know the right way to describe it. Here. Sure. But it was hiding as a field of hay. And then when they got close enough to it, they had to defeat the field of hay... At which point it converted itself into a, a humanoid twisty rope tentacle thing. And then they had to defeat that. Um, but because it was a field of hay, they had to defeat sections of the field of hay at a time. So it led to, again, this environmental interaction where they had to not only attack it, but get into it. Because some of the characters can only really deal melee damage. Mm-hmm. And... Also, and have to expose themselves to the same uh, hazards. So it was. It was a. I think it was a fun combat. I agree. Um, let's do because we're we're yeah. coming up on we're at like forty seven minutes now. Okay. Um, so let's real quick just uh, brief summaries: best and worst experiences as a player and as a dungeon master. I'm not going to answer this one because. The audience has heard this before from me. <laughs> You're not going to repeat it every time? No. Okay. <laughs> um, so I would say my best experience as a DM uh, recently was that Field of Wheat battle. Um, I felt like that was one that really came together. 
Um, and then recently, another encounter that I had that was not great, or not as good as I wanted it to be, and kind of uh, nagged at my mind, was the um, battle with Vilkirni, the green dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was disappointed in that one because I thought I had accounted for things, but in the end, you guys did a better job of preparing for it. <laughs> so it was just mostly that it felt like a letdown that this big bad green dragon didn't, you know, do more to you. But you guys, I mean, when I think about it, you guys did a really good job. Yeah, that's very much the uh, the adamantine golem fight from the Alchemist mm-hmm. Club was me too. <laughs> Except that was even more of a cakewalk for, for yeah. the party. If it makes yeah, you it... feel any better, I thought the fight with Vilkirni was very cool and appropriately threatening. So Okay, good, good. I'm glad. <laughs> I guess you were also the one who was like in Vilkirni's face the whole time. So. Yes. It was my job, too, because we weren't trying to kill the dragon. We were trying to send it back to its home mm-hmm. plane. And I was the cleric with the banish spells. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, and best and so worst that, is... that's a good uh, case where it's a good um, it was a good story element, I think, and less of a interesting like rules gamified one. Yes, I don't know. Yeah. Best and worst experiences as a player. <laughs> Gosh, this one was really hard. I think my best experience as a player was when my gnome wizard got, I think it was an orb of brightness. What's it called? The the crystal of light or something? Not the glow orb that hangs by your head, but the one that like shoots beams of light out of it. I know what you're talking about. I can't remember yeah. what it's called either. But my guy got one of those and then built a leather like strap for it to go across his chest. And then he just like, could do the Care Bear stare at things. <laughs> That's right, I remember um, that. <laughs> unfortunately, though, the monster we ended up fighting was made out of crystals, so I shot it with the Care Bear stare and ended up blinding myself instead. Yep. <laughs> I think I didn't really contribute to that combat. <laughs> um, and then worst... There was a... We did the Horde of the Dragon Queen, and I was playing a Warlock, and I think I just got... We were trying to figure out where their camp was and what they were doing, and I got way too, like, into that character, and I just, we started, like, torturing this one cult member, and I just remember leaving that session feeling like, that got way too intense, Joe. Like, you need to calm down. Like, that was not, (laughs) that was not called for. So, I think that's my worst experience, just because it felt like... Like, it felt like a, a D&D, r slash D&D horror story, and it was like, I did not mean to be that way, and I just was more embarrassed about that than anything else. Well, that's okay. I think everybody involved kind of regrets the Horde of the Dragon Queen <laughs> sessions we <laughs> For did. different reasons, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> um, Let's see, what else do we have? Uh, do you have, I guess, any... Questions for me, other than you know the ones that you've already asked. Uh, I had one more that I thought would be fun, which is, what are your non-canonical sources of inspiration? So anything not fantasy or other D and D podcast or anything like that. Not fantasy specifically. Um, yeah. I obviously I don't know if you would consider this fantasy or not, but I draw a lot from like the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, 
all of my campaigns tend to end up having elements of cosmic horror to them. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I maybe you count that, maybe you don't. This is this is kind of a difficult question for me because most of my inspiration comes from reading like fantasy novels. So mm -hmm. it, it, most of what I do is fantasy. Um, yeah. There's there's some bits of sci-fi kind of smuggled in there. <clears throat> but yeah, the floating gnome city, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um and there'll be potentially other things that come up later. Mhm. Mm but gosh, other than that, like it's you know, so much of my personality is steeped in kind of <laughs> fantasy as a as a rule of thumb. I guess yeah. if you want to if you want to get in on it, um Sometimes I will, like, see something, like, mechanically in a video game that I kind of like, and I will steal from that. Uh, there's a campaign that I am running uh, where I am planning on kind of making it sort of a, a roguelike experience in a little bit. <laughs> um, I don't know how that's going to play out, and... Or find what's a different example? There's I a lot of like combat encounters that I've done over the years. I will I will steal things from like boss fights from video games. Like Zelda's a pretty good one to just like here's a monster you have to hit it in these specific weak points or do these actions before you can damage it kind of thing. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Zelda's a good one for all sorts of puzzles too. Yes. If you're looking to include them. So when I was thinking about this one. I thought about my podcast listening habits because I'm basically listening to podcasts all the time on my walk to and from work and even a lot of times at work because I do a lot of handsy things that I don't have to be talking and listening for. Uh, and two in particular, um, one is 99% Invisible, I'm sure a lot of people listen to. Um, but I just find that if you think about the design choices that they're making in our world and then try to apply those to a fantasy setting, what would be the differences in how you apply those design choices? And like, how would that affect the build of a city or of a village or something like that? Um, I find that one to be very helpful for thinking about those little things that you might not otherwise think about when you're designing your majocracy. Sure. Um, and then another one that I really like for uh, inspiration is Planet Money, uh, which is kind of like pop economics. Um, There's a phrase. And, yes, right. <laughs> uh, but what I really love about it is it, they get very historical sometimes, or they'll talk about things that they always relate it back to very the like specific economic issue, and then relate it back to like the general sort of economic issue. And it really helps with motivations for NPCs. Because it's a lot about, like, what do these people, like, where is their money coming from? You know, like, if this person is out in the woods digging up ginseng, what are they willing to do to prevent other people from going out in the woods to dig up ginseng? And, like, just gives you an idea of, like, what are some very human motivations of, I need money to survive, sort of thing. That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I might have to look into those. I don't know that I could listen to a pop economics podcast. 
but <laughs> the other one maybe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I listen to a ton more to get inspiration from, but I think those two are the ones that give me the most inspiration. Sure. Oh, uh, we're okay. We're we're about ready to wrap up. Do you have any advice that you would like to? to hand out for new DMs or old DMs or players thinking about becoming DMs or, or just players in general? Um, I think it's advice that we've said kind of throughout this episode, but uh, communication is key, especially if you're starting out. You know, remind your players that you are learning this too and you're going to make mistakes and, you know, ask them to give you a little bit of leeway and just try to have some fun seems like pretty darn good advice to me and i'll i'll echo that communication very important communicate with your players communicate with your dm talk about stuff don't just let it simmer and fester get angry and like blow up about things we can head off a lot of conflicts uh this is our our podcast for like fourth grade yeah peer mediation <laughs> yeah <laughs> you can head off a lot of problems before they become problems if you talk about them first Exactly, yeah. Always have some sort of, you know, discussion of what your players are going to do, like, what characters they're going to play ahead of time, right? Uh You don't want to be caught blindsided that somebody shows up at your session one with a character that is from, you know, some arcane book somewhere that you've never heard of with a race that you've never heard of. You want to you wanna make sure everybody's on the same page and is doing the same thing. And it's, it's always a good idea, you know, tip your hand a little bit too. Tell them a little bit about what their campaign is going to be about so they don't create a, a character that's not going to work. Yes, that's... Session zero is ridiculously important. Yeah. <sighs> Anything else before we, we wind up here? That's not the word you use. Wrap up. That's the one I wanted. <laughs> we can wind it up, you know, like a yo-yo chord or something. Sure. Let's. That's what I meant. Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, no, I had a great time. Thanks for inviting me on here, Joe. And I hope uh, people enjoyed our conversation. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, you are. You have the distinct position of being the first ever guest on any uh, aspect of the Alchemist Club. I look forward to my honorary uh, platinum Patreon member <laughs> t-shirt. God, we really should like that would be an excellent t-shirt line, wouldn't it? Just platinum Patreon member. Oh, I have to talk to somebody about that. All right, uh, this has been another DM corner for the Alchemist Club. I've been Joe, your host and dungeon master, and this has been Joe, your dungeon master, but not your host. Bye. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you know where to find us at this point, I hope. And uh, podcast is available on all all the podcast places. Um, I have no idea when this is going to get posted, but tune in next week for an exciting new episode of The Alchemist Club. Thanks for listening. <laughs>